Amen. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. And I'll read the second part of this passage, verses 25 through 49, which will be our focus for the sermon uh, this morning, even though the beginning part fills in the picture. It's on page 738 of your pew Bible, if you, if you closed your Bible. I invite you to stand once again for, out of respect for the reading of God's word. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this the dream is certain and its interpretation sure then king nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to daniel and commanded that an offering an incense be offered up to him the king answered and said to daniel truly your god is god of gods and lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery then the king gave daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, great revealer of mysteries, we thank you for what you have spoken through the prophet Daniel and through this dream that the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, received. But Lord, we thank you that what is revealed is not just for kings, but for us. And what you tell us through this king's dream is one that is something that gives us profound confidence. Work that in us this morning, we pray. Amen. You remember before my son Lewis made his sudden appearance, this somewhat early and unexpected appearance, and that we were in Daniel chapter 2 and that we were uh, working our way through that chapter in two parts. We heard about the king's dream. We heard about the contest that was happening to discover uh, what this king's dream was all about and how uh, only the wisdom of God could reveal the contents of this dream. And I was very excited to tell you about the dream itself, I'd, I'd, I'd led you up and, and left you with a cliffhanger. What, what could this dream be all about? But my son had other plans and uh, had us wait for two more weeks to hear about the dream and its interpretation. Well, here we are. We've made it to the dream. And I want to tell you that what we see in this dream, the dream of a great statue, frightening statue, and of, and of a small stone, What we see in this dream is, in fact, a thesis statement that unpacks the book of Daniel, really makes sense of the book of Daniel. When I was in college and I was an English major, our, um, my college professors told me, you have to have a thesis statement for your paper. It needs to be a summary of what your paper is going to be about, and you should really put it somewhere early on in your paper so that I'm not just looking around confused for what this is all about. 
Well, as it were, Daniel has given us a thesis statement. He's given us a a key to making sense of, of what the rest of his book is going to be about. But he's given it to us in the form of a dream. And a dream that comes from all people through a great king, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it's in the interpretation of this dream that we come to make sense of what the rest of Daniel is going to be about. It's narratives and it's prophecies and it's apocalyptic portions. What is it all about? It's all about a hope that is found in God's indestructible kingdom. That's what this is all about. A hope that is found in God's indestructible kingdom. It's important for us to hear this good news this morning because I want to remind you one other thing about the book of Daniel. It comes to us as a survival guide for our time in exile. It comes to us as this manual for how we are going to navigate the times as we are already starting to see God's city, Zion, burst forth in, in, into this world. But still, we live amongst a world that sees Christians as strange. In fact, a world that sees the gospel as something to be opposed and resisted and pushed away. And Christians as those who refuse to conform. We, very much like the people of Israel, are exiles wandering through this world on our way back to Zion. We have the promise of God that he is with us. But while we are waiting, we need that thesis statement of the book of Daniel to keep us grounded and pushing forward. And that thesis statement, again, is that our hope is found in God's indestructible kingdom. If you're going to understand that thesis, you have to understand the image of this dream. Two images, in fact. It's going to guide our sermon. First of all, the statue. What's that crazy statue all about? And second, you've got to understand the stone. You can almost picture it in, in your hand, a, a, little, a little stone. That perhaps you've picked out of the creek, you know, a smooth stone. What's that all about? Well, in understanding these two images, we understand the great thesis of the book of Daniel. So first, let's look at that statue. Can you, can you picture the statue in your mind? Kids, you can almost draw it out in front of you, right, on a paper uh, in, in, with different colors. Because this statue is, is amazing and it's frightening all in one. Um, it has a head of fine gold. You could almost take yourself back to those history books, right, in school where you read about um, the, the great statues that were put up in Babylon you can almost see, right, the, the statue of a man, a, a gold head with, with a beard. And then you have uh, the chest and the arms of this great statue are silver. And then you work your way down to uh, the, the, the torso, the, the, uh, the stomach and the thighs, and they are um, of bronze. And then you come down to the leg of the statue and the legs are made of iron. And the feet fade away to a mixture of clay and iron. And you say, that has to be one of the craziest things I've ever heard. What is this all about? And you, you picture this image and um, it is of incredible size. It's gigantic. Imagine you're standing before it. You look up, here it is. Of course, you're going to, like the king, be 
afraid, frightened. This is like the Megatron, right? Those of you who know Transformers, like this is the Megatron standing before you. Powerful, frightening, destructive. You wonder, you know, if, if he took a step, he'd crush me. What is this all about? The king says this, it was mighty and of exceeding brightness. Daniel interprets what this statue is. The statue is the kingdoms of the ancient world. The kingdoms that would proceed after Daniel. After um, his time, after the kings receiving this vision. Um, is a parade of the great world powers. Four powerful kingdoms, four powerful empires. And I have to tell you, if you're expecting me to tell you what those are today, you're going to have to wait a bit. Because I've decided early on that I'm going to make you wait to learn what those world powers are. The main point in this passage is not identifying exactly who those world powers are. We know who the first is, right? Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But if I were to enter into all those debates that scholars have over who the three kingdoms are following Nebuchadnezzar, I'd be distracting us from the main point of this passage. In fact, we're going to wait until later where Daniel, later in his book, starts to identify who exactly those kingdoms are. And he helps us out. So wait just a little bit longer. But what we see in this great statue is God telling his people ahead of time, a thousand years ahead of time, that there will be a parade of great world powers. First comes Babylon, and then after it, another kingdom. And then after it, another kingdom reaching across the globe. And then after it, yet another world power. Notice one thing about this Parade of great powers. Notice something about this statue. It does show us one kingdom after another with each part and each element that makes up the statue. But don't miss this, that it is one statue. It is one composite thing. And in this sense, we have to hear that this statue is none other than the enterprise of human power. This statue is the history, a philosophy of of mankind. It is man himself with all his power, with all his cultures, with all his empires, uh, you throw them into one and he is this giant statue that says, I am man, hear me roar. The Megatron. Empire after empire making its attempt at human greatness. And that's what this is. It's a giant statue. In fact, it's called an image, an exceedingly great image. That's the same word we're going to see over and over in Daniel used to talk about idols. Idol worship. That's what this statue is. It is the great parade of world empires, but it is also at the same time an idol rearing its head against God. Think back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. What what do we see there? We see the people who have departed from God, 
who want to make a name for themselves. And what do they do? They say, well, let's build a tower with its top to the heavens. A tower of exceeding greatness. Well, here, the Tower of Babel has returned. Only now, in this dream, it's not just a tower. It's, it's a towering statue. It's a great image. It's a great idol. That is what human history is all about. It is about empire after empire, culture after culture, making its attempt to be great apart from God. The Tower of Babel come to life. That's what this statue is, and it's scary. You don't have to think much. I mean, think about what you learned in, in your school books. Uh, think about what you learned about human histories and, and the armies of the world and the great powers of the world culminating in people like Hitler and Pol Pot. And you don't have to take long to realize that this statue, this attempt at human greatness is horrifying. Even when it's a little bit more subdued and, you know, it talks about... Um, uh, the statue speaks of tolerance and the, statu- the statue speaks of equality. Even then, it is scary what it can do when it doesn't like you. And yet, look at what's true of the statue. The statue is, in the grand scheme of things, nothing. The statue is fleeting. Verse 39, there's this key phrase here. Imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar and you're being told the interpretation of, your, of this dream and, and you're, you're on the edge of your seat and Daniel says, oh, great king, in whose hands are the powers of the world after you will come another kingdom. Now, I wonder if suddenly, you know, that, that I wonder if that bothered Nebuchadnezzar. I hope it did. After you. He doesn't like to think much about this. We're going to see this later. But Nebuchadnezzar is just one piece in the grand march of human history. And in fact, he is just one tiny piece at service for God, who's really the one guiding all of this, right? God is the one who is actually orchestrating this statue for his own glory to reveal that human powers, human greatness is fleeting. So that after someone like Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his armies, with his far reach of empires, there will still be an after you. I wonder if our nation realizes that. I wonder if our rulers think enough that there will be an after you. Each of our presidents needs that imprinted upon their hearts after you. Our nation, ourself, needs to realize that. Fleeting and fickle. This is another thing about this statue. Look, piece after piece that makes up this statue. Actually, you see a kind of decay happen, right? You start with the fine head of gold. Then what comes next? Silver. Right? I mean, think about the order of anniversaries, right? I mean, gold, gold's like, what? Is that the 50th anniversary? A wedding anniversary? So you're, you're working your way up the elements, right? I mean, you know, Imagine for your 50th anniversary, you, you, know, you pulled out some piece of silver. Like, no, you're going, you're, you're, you're going downhill. That's not right. But, but that's what happens with these empires. 
Each empire is lesser than the next, even if it is more reaching across the globe. Gold gives way to silver. Silver declines to bronze. And bronze weakens to iron until you end up with the feet of this statue being this weak mixture of iron and clay. This is what we need to realize about human history. It is not, ultimately, it is not improving. It's really important to hear. It's crumbling. Each attempt at human greatness is weaker than the other. That's why the philosophy, the world view called humanism, it just doesn't work. It's not good news to, to say that human humans have within themselves the possibility of greatness that can transform the world and bring it true hope. Because um, listen to this uh, humanist manifesto I found online. It's called uh, the Human, Humanist Project. You can look it up. They say this. This is their statement. We believe that if human beings embrace unity and collaboration amidst um, Uh, their diversity, the equality of every individual, then humanity's advance will continue. Now, that is a bold thesis statement. That is a bold hope, but it's just not the hope of the Bible. It's not. And it bothers me that Christians are um, increasingly starting to actually buy into this. And say that humanism is is what the scriptures teach. It's not. What the scriptures teach is that each attempt at human greatness, even if it looks more powerful on the outside, it's actually crumbling, crumbling, crumbling. Because there's a fatal flaw. The feet. The feet of the statue are mixed with clay. You say, well, who on earth designed that? You don't take the most important part of a statue, its base, and you mix it with the weakest kind of material. And yet that's what's true of this statue. And that's what's true of human history. It cannot stand. Why? Because men are still sinners. And that when you get to the the long line of empire after empire after empire, at the end, you still have sin, division, weakness. Rebellion against God. Humanity has a fatal problem. Sin is that problem. And that problem has left it with a fatal flaw, a weakness. That means it will inevitably fall apart. And so this dream is what? This dream, when you're looking at the statue, it's Basically, the obituary for humanity's great project to advance itself. This statue is an epitaph for every attempt of human greatness. Now, why is God telling us this? What does he want us to see? I think what God is actually showing us is he is, he is teaching us to look at reality around us in a certain way. He's training us to think of human history and and human progress um, in a particular kind of way. 
Because we're going to see nations rise and fall. Isn't that even what we're seeing today? We're seeing um, the, the network of, of, of human powers. You've, uh, you've got American politics and, um, and international um, issues. And you've got the, the, the dynamics of Ukraine and Vladimir Putin. And all of it together is being mixed And you're seeing nations surge and the statue shake. And God is saying, don't be alarmed at that. Don't be alarmed. He's saying, I am behind all of this. I am in control of all of this. The statue moves at my command. And what is God doing? He's bringing about through all of this the inevitable end of the great powers of this world that say, I am man, hear me roar. That's really important to know, isn't it? It's really important to look at human history this way because sometimes the statue scares us. Sometimes we're like Daniel in this dream and he says, that statue was frightening in its appearance. Imagine being the people of Israel at this time. You have just seen, at the time in which Daniel was receiving these dreams, you've just seen your temple decimated. It's been crushed under the foot of the statue. What are you thinking at that time? You're thinking, well, where is God in all this? I guess the powers of this world, I guess Babylon really is the end of it all. We, too, will see times when human government and popular culture tries to crush us and actually will succeed in bringing great pressure. We will feel that statue's foot on top of us. And in fact, some of us are feeling that right now. You don't have to look far to see that we are, we're no longer, if we ever were, we are no longer at a time in which um, biblical convictions are popular. They're just not. We are no longer in a nation in which living out Christian convictions and sharing that with the world will, uh, will be seen as a totally good thing. In fact, we're increasingly becoming a problem. And the temptation when this happens, when we see culture rear its head against us and human governments start to squeeze us, we, we start to feel that temptation to cave in under fear, to compromise. So I ask you, where are you feeling that pressure today? Where does the statue scare you? Maybe you see it at work. Maybe you see it with your friends, your family. Um, Where is that? Where are you afraid to stand against the statue? God says, don't be alarmed. I am with you. I am bringing about the end of that great statue. But there's something else here. We also need to be aware of this when the statue tries to befriend us. Sometimes the statue does befriend us. 
Sometimes the king or the president or, or our culture makes a kind of alliance with us. And we've seen this throughout human history too, that there are uh, times as we surf over those waves of empires that the church receives a kind of blessing from uh, the popular culture. When culture decides that for a time Christianity is cool, the king says, hey, you have something to offer to me, Christians. Why don't we make a treaty? And the temptation when that happens is what? The temptation is to give our hearts to the image. The temptation is to say, wow, this feels really nice having your applause. It feels really nice having your protection. And so we, we say, you know what I'm going to become? I'm going to become the guy who just shines the statue, makes it look nice and pretty. I'm going to become, you are going to become my idol. You know, that's a real danger. And we need, we need to be on guard for that. It is not wrong to find ourselves in a place where God, under his great power and, and his great leading, gives us a season where we have this unique opportunity from the blessing of our culture to share the gospel in ways that otherwise would be very difficult. But you know what is wrong? What's wrong is to say, culture, you have become my God. Culture, I need you to like me. Let me tone down the things you don't like so you like me. We need to be aware of that, friends. Because the kingdoms of this world are passing away. They are serving God's great purpose. And the stone, the stone is what will remain. Let's look at that stone real quick. Imagine in your hand you have that stone. It's just a little pebble. But in every way, it is different from the kingdoms of this world. It's different from the statue in every possible way. It is firm. And its firmness comes from what? Not from it being this, um, this great source of human greatness, but from it being made not by human hands. It comes into the scene like a comet outside of our world, penetrating this world order. And it has a firmness that you just can't find from gold or silver or bronze or, or, or iron or clay. Because it's made by God himself. And then this stone is not only firm, but it is final. When all other empires of the world lay in an in, in ash heap, when other, all other empires have stones over their caskets, this kingdom stands. The end is already written. The stone has the victory. And then the final thing you need to see about the stone is that it completely flips, off, uh, flips our expectations. Starts off small like this little pebble and it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it takes over the world. That's completely unlike the statue, right? That has this impressive head of gold and yet it decays and decays and decays and decays until you have these fickle feet of clay. What is this stone? The stone is Christ Jesus. The stone is the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, you can look there um, if you'd like, or you could write it down and look at it later. Uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which speaks about the stone which the builders rejected, which he says has now become the cornerstone. 
Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the key to the kingdom that is firm, final, and that flips our expectations. Because how does Jesus come? Well, he comes as that one from the outside, very God of very God, come to take on human flesh. And he comes to advance his kingdom, not through impressive conquests, not through bloody campaigns, not through human power, but through the blood of his cross. And through the surprise of an empty tomb. And he builds a firm foundation for a kingdom that can last, not like the feet that crumble under moral decay, but but how the foundation of a new creation. He, He deals with our sin by taking our sin to the cross, by dying for our sins, and then he rises again so that now we have victory over sin and in him we are a new creation. That's a firm foundation for a lasting kingdom. So that now in our lives, as we belong to Christ Jesus and participate in him and stand upon his foundation, we are not going from glory to decay, but from decay to glory. That's our hope. That Christ has triumphed and he is going to triumph. He is king of kings and lord of lords. That Nebuchadnezzar will bow his knee to him. That is the great hope that we have, friends, that God has an indestructible kingdom. It's not like what we see in this world. It's not like Putin's Russia. It's not like Biden's America. It's not like Trump's America. It's a kingdom that stands, that's firm, that prevails. Aren't you you ready for that? Where are you looking, Christians? Are you looking at the statue or the stone? Where are your eyes fixed? That's something you have to reckon with here. As I bring this to a close, you really have to ask yourself, am, is my heart given to the statue to saying human greatness Prevail, or is my heart given to the kingdom of God, which alone can provide a firm basis for human success? Because it's success as God defines it. You know, I pray that you would focus your eyes on that stone, which even now is growing and growing and growing, like that little leaven to take over the whole world. Where are you looking? Here's another question. How are you measuring success? It's a really important thing to ask as we come to the end of this passage. Because you know what? The church can feel small and ineffective. We can feel like a stone tossed against a massive statue. We can feel like David against Goliath. But this passage tells you that present appearances are not the whole picture. In fact, Christ is with us to advance his kingdom and that right now, where are we at? We are at the headquarters for a stone that is growing to take over the whole world. That's what the church is. Do you believe that? Sometimes it's really hard to believe. 
It's also hard to believe when we look at our personal battles against sin and you say, wait, I fell into that again? Are you kidding? I thought that was dealt with. And you look at, you say, I thought I would be so much further along in the Christian life by this point. Why am I still struggling with these temptations? But don't miss what's happening in your life. The rock is rolling slowly, but surely it is gaining steam. And and as you're being sanctified and conformed to the image of Jesus. Success is working out its its way as, as the Holy Spirit conforms you to holiness. How are you measuring success? By, by the way this world defines it, by looking to the statue or by looking to the stone with its small beginnings, with its small but sure victories that take over the whole world. You know, when we really believe these things, when we really fix our eyes on the stone, we don't become a detriment to our society. We don't become a problem to our culture. We actually become a gift. We've been saying that over and over again in Daniel, right? What happens at the end of this passage? It simply says this. Daniel remained at the king's court. You know, friends, that's where we are right now. We are in this world, but not of it. We have jobs to do. We have governments to bless. We have presidents to hold accountable. We have cultures to speak into. We have jobs to make an impact in. You know how we do that well? Not by idolizing the statue, but by keeping our eyes focused on the stone. Only then can we really be a lasting blessing to this world. Are you ready for that? Let's pray.